Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 123, Our God is Love. Well, it's been a while since the last episode of the Theopologetics podcast, and as usual for that, I apologize, and I'll just ask you to continue um, uh, keeping your eyes open for new episodes, as I have no intention of letting this podcast disappear uh, or come to an end. Uh, but as I've said every time, I've had to give this disclaimer at the beginning of a podcast episode. Uh, I have a number of responsibilities that are um, taking up a lot of my time, including school, including Rethinking Hell, including home and family life, including work, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> so I do appreciate your patience with me, and I hope that the episode I have lined up for you today is an enjoyable one. I think it will be. It's certainly fascinating and deep, uh, and, and I think it will spur you to think about a topic more deeply than perhaps you're accustomed to thinking about it, um, which I think is fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, just a couple of quick things I wanted to mention. First of all, uh, it is 7.30 a.m. Pacific time as I'm recording this, uh, Sunday, March uh, 13th, and in, uh, what, 17 hours? Is my math right? Uh, yeah, a little after midnight, I'll be flying out of SeaTac Airport, headed to Grand Rapids, Michigan, the Christian publishing capital of the world, it seems, uh, where I will be speaking at a couple of local churches there, uh, discussing the topic of hell, um, maybe recording a podcast or two with some, uh, with some people there, uh, and doing a couple of other things as well. If you're in the Grand Rapids area and are interested in, uh, having a cup of coffee or something like that, don't hesitate to shoot me an email. Chris at theapologetics.com. Uh, and I would love to meet you and, uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, shoot the proverbial, um, scat. <laughs> Uh, I wasn't going to say the real word. So uh, I, I'm really thankful for the opportunity to speak to some people out there, and I'm looking forward to some great conversation. Um, even more exciting for me personally, however, is that in uh, at the end of this month, at March 31st, I'll be flying to Lynchburg, Virginia, um, to where I'm currently getting my education, Liberty University, uh, because I submitted a proposal to the Evangelical Theological Society conference that's going to be held at Liberty University April 1st and 2nd, and they accepted my proposal. Uh, I'll be speaking on the hermeneutics of conditional immortality, uh, and I'll be offering a defense of the interpretive method um, utilized by Edward Fudge and other conditionalists in defense of our view of hell. Um, these ETS regional meetings are open to the public, not just ETS members. And so if you would like to uh, come and sit in and and watch my talk or, or uh, you know, or that or those of others, please do, please don't hesitate to uh, find the conference registration website online. I'll include a link in the uh, in the show notes to this blog post. Um, I think tickets are like $30. It's not it's not excessive. And you get a lot of different um, uh, speakers that you would get to see, breakout speakers or what they call parallel sessions, as well as the uh, plenary speakers, which which of course aren't, don't include me. Um, but you, I think you'll find a lot of talks there that are very interesting, not the least of which hopefully is mine. So do check out the show notes for this episode if you live anywhere near Lynchburg, Virginia and would like to come and see me speak and see other, pe- uh, other speakers speak. Um, 
and maybe just to meet up and shake hands as well. Uh, again, it's, it's April 1st and 2nd, Lynchburg, Virginia. Um, and if you want to, uh, while you're listening to this episode, episode before you get to the show notes for it, if you want to check it out, you might be able to just go to ETSJets. That's ETSJETS.org. Click on regions and then go to the Eastern region, uh, and then look at their 2016 regional conference meeting, uh, and you'll find the link to where you can register online and all of those things. But again, I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes so that you can access it easily, uh, from my website. Uh, with those things out of the way, let's go ahead and play the next promo in my rotation, which is for my friend, Dr. Glenn Peoples. Say hello to my little friend. Hi, this is Glenn Peoples from Say Hello to My Little Friend, a.k.a. The Beretta Cast. Tune in to hear discussions of philosophy, theology, and even the odd bit of politics from a Christian point of view that doesn't necessarily fit in with the crowd. Search for Say Hello to My Little Friend at the iTunes store, or check us out online, beretta-online.com. I'm a big fan of Glenn Peoples, and I count it an honor to be able to call him a friend. Um, it's a blessing to be able to work with him in ministry at Rethinking Hell, uh, and I thoroughly enjoy reading his uh, his apologetics and philosophy work at, at his blog at rightreason.org, uh, and I enjoy listening to his podcast as well, Say Hello to My Little Friend, which you can subscribe to at his website. Um, Glenn will get you to think deeply about topics that maybe you haven't thought deeply enough about to critically analyze what it is that you believe in a way that you perhaps haven't done before. Um, in particularly those areas in which you, uh, disagree with Glenn, of which there will no doubt be several. Um, but on the most important issues of faith, I think that you'll find you're in agreement and, and, um, his, his thinking on the topic will prompt you to think about the topic, uh, in a way that will edify you and, um, <clears throat> and make you a more effective evangelist and apologist and Christian thinker, um, which I think is something that is, uh, really important in today's day and age. So again, do check out Glenn's podcast and blog at rightreason.org. And, um, I, I think that you'll be blessed by it. With that, let's go ahead and move into today's interview. Hello and welcome once again to another episode of the Theapologetics Podcast. I know it's been a while, but I think the wait will prove to have been worth it as I've got an excellent interview guest for you today. As Christians, we're familiar with the oft-repeated biblical statement that God is love. And of course, the most famous verse in scripture is John 3.16, which begins, God so loved the world. Now, if my guest today is to be believed, packed densely into short statements like these is a wealth of doctrinal data yet to be fully mined. His recently published book attempts to do some of that mining, offering a comprehensive canonical interpretation of divine love. His name is Dr. John Peckham, and he's Associate Professor of Theology and Christian Philosophy at the Theological Seminary of Andrews University. Of his recent book, The Love of God, A Canonical Model, Terence Thiessen writes that it is a highly valuable resource for further study. It stimulated me intellectually, and it often prompted me to worship. Jerry Walls praises Professor Peckham as well, saying he shows mastery of a wide array of biblical and theological literature and has impressively deployed such resources in this well-informed, carefully nuanced, and hermeneutically sophisticated work. And Peckham's book was an InterVarsity Press 2015 Reader's Choice Award winner. Professor Peckham, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. 
Thank you, Chris. Glad to be with you. I often like to begin my interviews by getting to, to know my guests a little bit, and I usually begin with their faith background. So maybe you could share a little bit of yours. Were you a follower of Christ from a very early age, or did you begin to believe at some later age? Those kinds of things. Yeah, my father was a youth pastor, so I've been a believer all my life, and I got to grow up around a very vibrant youth ministry that my father ran. And so I, of course, overhear all of the uh, programs he was doing in Vespers uh, with with the youth in his group. And my father was also a very avid reader and had a large library. So I remember from a very young age uh, just beginning to read some of his books. Of course, he, he read to me when I was when I was young, The Chronicles of Narnia, and that had an impact on me. And then later, uh, I read quite a bit of C.S. Lewis and was uh, very much positively impacted uh, by his writings and continued to be so. So I've been a believer my entire life. Um, and I, I consider it a privilege uh, to have grown up uh, a pastor's kid, even though I know many don't always have the most positive experience. It was a positive experience for me. Mm. You know, in a day and age when many or most Christians seem to have real little interest in, uh, you know, in in a in a um, in theological pursuit, right, in, in in pursuit of a real solid understanding of Christian theology and of and of, and of the scriptures, how how is it that you came to appreciate? theology and exegesis and things like that. I mean, uh, certainly overnight, you didn't just become a, a professor at a, at a Christian university. So, um, you know, w- was it being a pastor's kid that got you interested in theology and, and exegesis and maybe some philosophy as well? Yeah, I, no doubt that played, I'm sure, a large role. I, I just remember from a very young age having a lot of questions, and uh, both, both of my parents, uh, of course, talked to me about religious issues quite a bit, and we had an open dialogue, and I had so many questions that I just wanted to answer. And I remember uh, at that time, of course, I thought that the answers would be relatively simple if I would just look through uh, the books in my father's library and find the right one and read long enough, I could find the answer. Of course, it, it didn't take long for me to realize that things weren't, weren't always so simple. But in that pursuit, I read quite a bit, and I just I just caught the bug for theology. Uh, but nevertheless, when I was uh, in undergraduate, I was actually a, a business major, and uh, I actually it was during my undergraduate in, in business and accounting. I had different plans that I felt the call of God to go into ministry, and particularly to go into academic theology. That uh, whatever gifts I had been given uh, were were intended for that. I felt very strongly, so that's what I did. I went straight from seminary straight to seminary after my undergraduate, and uh, and on to academic theology. Very cool. How about your family life? Are you, you know, married with children, or perhaps single, and thus blessed with far more time to study than folks like me? <laughs> well, I'm blessed, blessed with a family. Uh, my wife Brenda is a registered nurse, and she's just uh, a wonderful woman. And um, I, I couldn't do anything uh, that I do without her, uh, quite literally. And we have uh, one son. He's almost five years old, Joel, and he keeps us on our toes. He keeps us busy and. Uh, we're just trying to keep up with him these days. And besides theology, what other sorts of interests and passions do you have? Yeah, besides theology, uh, the greatest passion uh, outside of relationship with God is, of course, of course, my family and trying to keep up with Joel. Uh, but outside of that, I've always enjoyed sports. Uh, I've always enjoyed reading generally. Uh, but I don't have much time uh, <laughs> for the former these days. Of course, I still do a lot of reading, though most of that is is for research and for writing. So between teaching a full load, I'm attempting a a rather robust research agenda these days. Uh, The remainder of my time is is devoted to uh, quality family time. 
you know, I'm not a particularly uh, big fan of sports, but there there is at least one particular sport that I'm really a fan of. I, I, is there a particular sport that that you know you're particularly interested in, or is it just sports in general? I enjoy I enjoy all the team sports. Uh, basketball okay. is my favorite sport as a child, and oh, I that's like the worst sport. High school and college, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I, I'm just uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of hockey, and I don't think anything lives up to hockey. Uh, I never played or watched hockey of the team sport of the four major team sports. That was the one out of the four that I never really got into. But well, you and I are just not going to get along very well. well <laughs> let's begin talking about your book, The Love of God. Um, you know, in in comic book terms, what's its origin story? What, what prompted you to concentrate your study on divine love, and whence came the idea to write your book? Yeah, this particular book uh, derives from my dissertation research. It's not the same uh, book. My my dissertation actually ended up being very long uh, for reasons that we might get into later, uh, but. Uh, it came out of that research. Uh, I always had in mind once I saw that the research was going to be larger than I originally intended that I would that I would write a shorter book, still still academic, but a shorter work uh, that that would reach a, a larger audience, hopefully, uh, than the research in the dissertation. But for the dissertation topic itself, I really wanted to make a contribution to doctrine of God. That was my main area of study, my main area of interest. I've always been, uh, as long as I can remember, at least I've been interested in area. Uh, issues of the problem of evil and God's providence. And I didn't want to take on uh, that entire topic and, and, and I wanted to take into account the God world relationship. And so I, I began speaking with my dissertation advisor about uh, maybe doing something with the issue of divine love, specifically how God relates to the world. And, and that the study came out of that, those discussions. And then the book derived uh, from that research. You know, there are a number of issues, a number of topics that as Christians that we, we tend to sort of take for granted and not really give a lot of thought to. They're the kinds of things that, you know, oh, I've got this. I, I can move on now. Uh, it, I get the impression that the love of God is probably one of those things that we take for granted in that way but probably shouldn't. Do, do you find that there's a there's a really, you know, yet-to-be-mined wealth of data when it comes to the love of God, uh, like I mentioned in introducing you? Yes, absolutely. Because uh, you know, of course, it's central central to to everything that I believe about God. And when I began to look into it, um, I wanted to do something on that central issue. Uh, but I I thought, like everyone else, that I knew what divine love was like. And when I began to do the literature review and, and the research, I saw uh, not only a, a, lo- a lot of disagreement among theologians, but then a lot of things that were taken for granted uh, in academic theology that had also been taught in, in, in popular theology that, um, raised a lot of questions. And so I began to ask some of those questions and, yeah. uh, been very edified in trying to find at least some answers. Obviously I can only scratch the surface of a topic, uh, that important and that large, but yeah. it's been very edifying to me to do so. I can imagine. Uh, in the, in the acknowledgments section of your book, you write that among others who have encouraged you in writing the book, perhaps most significant was Professor Jerry Walls at Houston Baptist University. Um, incidentally, he's somebody that I really enjoy arguing with over a meal uh, and in podcast interviews, as listeners to the Rethinking Hell podcast will know, um, although I do really appreciate and enjoy his friendship. H- how did you and Jerry get connected, and, and in what ways did he encourage you in the writing of your book? Yeah, we got connected uh, through the dissertation. He was the outside reader for my dissertation. And uh, I had already enjoyed and appreciated his work. Um, and so when the committee at Andrews, where I did my PhD, typically asks for some 
potential recommendations of people who would be who would be good scholars in your field. And he was the one one of the ones that I included on my list, and he was chosen. And thankfully, on his part, he was willing uh, to be an outside reader, particularly for such a large dissertation. And then after that, uh, we we stayed in touch, and he had uh, very positive things to say about my work and encouraged me to publish it. And uh, we've just become good friends since then. Hey, he's a good guy. He's uh, uh, he's somebody that's fun to to cross proverbial swords with at times as well. He's he is yeah. he is very so, sharp mind and sharp wit to boot. Yes, and, and and he's blunt. He he'll 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 say it as he thinks it is. Um, that's. <laughs> yeah. Now, the subtitle of your book is a canonical model, and on the back cover of your book, it, it, it says it's, set, it's to offer a comprehensive canonical interpretation of divine love. What is the significance of the word canonical as it pertains to the interpretation of God's love that your book presents? Canonical describes is shorthand for the theological method that I am employing, uh, which I call a canonical theological method. Of course, canonical means a lot of different things in different disciplines within, within biblical studies uh, and theological studies. So uh, there's an entire chapter on the book that describes uh, the methodology I'm using, uh, but I'll try to just summarize some of the main points uh, for our purposes. Uh, basically, by canonical, I mean using scripture and all of scripture as the rule for theological interpretation. Hmm. So it entails that scripture is canonical in its etymological sense. It is the rule over which there is no other rule, right, or the norm that is not normed by anything else. And that is a corpus. It's not just – even though, of course, exegetically we need to take each book and each part of a book within its immediate context and uh, whatever we can know with confidence uh, from the history of that book – there is a corpus of books that is the canon, and those books taken collectively – uh, I believe, provide the fodder that we should be doing theology from. So that's the basic idea of what, me, what I mean by canonical interpretation. Uh, but it entails that in asking particular questions about divine love, I ask those questions first inductively by a reading of the entire canonical data, uh, trying to glean, actually, first uh, organizing any text in the entire scriptures that I thought could impinge upon the questions I was asking even slightly. And then I went from there, trying as much as possible to allow the canon uh, to inform not only the answers that I gave, but also inform and reform the questions that I was asking. Mm. Of course, that process is, is a lot easier said than done, and there's a number, number of steps that go into it. Uh, but the main idea is letting the canon rule, not just in word, but in methodology. Interesting. So you open the book, at least in you know in your first chapter, you open the book by contrasting two models of divine love, which you say are mutually exclusive. One of them sort of derived from classical theism or featured in classical theism. The other uh, being arrived at from much more recent and um, uh, from much more recent process panentheism, as you call it. Um, the former of those you call transcendent voluntarist. The latter you call imminent experiential, uh, experientialist. And there's a lot of big words I've just thrown around. And without, yes. obvi- yeah, and without obviously going into the detail that you do in your book, maybe you can sort of summarize what these two views are and, and how they set the stage for the rest of your book. Yeah, the two views, uh, the transcendent voluntarist and the imminent experientialist model, uh, were among those major prominent views from the 20th century and onward that – by and large, of course, you can always find views that go beyond those to one extreme or another. But they were good representatives of kind of the ends of the spectrum, 
Mm. Uh, almost polar opposites when it came to the definition and nature of divine love and the larger conception of God's nature behind that view of divine love. And what they hold in common is is both of those models uh, demonstrably begin with a particular conception of God, a particular divine ontology, and a particular conception of the God-world relationship. And from that particular conception of the God-world relationship, they derive a definition of divine love, which if you understand the ontology they're working from, divine love couldn't be otherwise. So if we take uh, the transcendent voluntarist model on the one hand, that is the, the more traditional of the two. And in that model, love is, uh, to put it simply, uh, unilateral beneficence, right? So God blesses people in a one-way relationship unilaterally, and that is the definition of love. That entails that love is utterly unconditional, unmotivated, uh, that God cannot actually take pleasure in love relationship with human beings on the one hand. On the other side, you have process panentheism, where love is literally universal sympathy, that God feels the feelings of all others. He couldn't do otherwise because he's essentially related to the world. Uh, panentheism itself means uh, that the world is in God. And of course, there's many different kinds of panentheism. But in this kind, uh, the world is part of God's body. At least that's one of the analogies. And so God feels uh, as a matter of an internal relationship, everything that happens to everyone else, and he just couldn't do otherwise. So that treats God and his love as primarily passive. He's not entirely passive, but his, his love is basically feeling and tr- uh, trying to influence in a uh, primarily passive way uh, the world. And the transcendent voluntarist model is, uh, on the other side, very active and deterministic conception of love in the God-world relationship. So they provided uh, two models that set the stage, and they both uh, being contemporaneous with each other. I used primarily Charles Hartshorn on the process side and Carl F. H. Henry on the uh, transcendent voluntarist side. And they both both were critical of the models of, of the other and uh, also had uh, quite strong criticisms. So they provided a context in which to have a good discussion about the issues. Uh, even though I start with those two models, I tried not to presuppose that either one of them was correct or incorrect a priori. I was, again, trying to let the biblical data uh, actually derive a model of love uh, that would help me to to discuss some of the issues that were raised in that conflict. Hence the word canonical to describe. Right. Yeah. Uh, now, without, you know, sort of at risk of letting the cat out of the bag, d- did you find that one of these two views over the other was m- a, a much more accurate view? Or did you find that perhaps there were sort of important um, elements or facets of each of the two that, 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 um, that are true of God's love? Um, in other words, is it, is, it somewhere, is it somewhere close to a both and or is it really kind of an either or? Yeah, I, I don't know if I would put it either of those ways. Okay. What I would say, <laughs> what I would say is um, there are strengths in both conceptions of love, but in both of them there tends to be at least what I consi- would consider to be o- overstatements, even even in the elements where there are, are positives, at least especially on the process panentheist side. Mm. Um, there are many of affinities with, with what is said on the transcendent voluntarist model in the model that I came up with, which uh, I call the four conditional reciprocal model. Uh, but what I found was they're really mutually exclusive models. So yes, you could choose between them, and that was one option. Uh, but I found that there were aspects of divine love that didn't quite 
fit with either model. Mm. And that led me to attempt to develop a, a third model uh, that in dialogue with both of them, but particularly being derived from the canon, could advance the discussion and move beyond what is actually what really is a mutually uh, exclusive uh, conversation that they're having. And uh, not just between those two models, there are a number of other uh, scholars who looked into divine love, and uh, there's there was major dissatisfaction on all sides and in between those. Of course, there's a large spectrum in between those models, and there's there was enough dissatisfaction that I thought uh, it. There's room for another model, and let's see what happens if instead of presupposing uh, that I already know what God is like, I already know what the God relationship is like, uh, what if I attempted insofar as possible to put those presuppositions on the table? Obviously, you cannot divest yourself of those entirely, but put those on the table and go directly to the canonical text and ask first, how does the Bible describe God's love and relationship to the world? And from there, what would that tell me about the God-world relationship? Yeah, And and I end up with, with a different model. Yeah, and and you know, just for the record, I mean, the reason I asked the question is because uh, to to give a somewhat similar, or to give what is somewhat of an analogy in in the discussion over different models of the atonement, uh, many people seem to treat uh, differing models, say for example, penal substitution and Christus yeah. Victor, as if they are mutually exclusive. When I personally am inclined to uh, to believe, as I think a number of scholars do, that in reality um, the atonement reflects both of those models and, and several others as well. And so I was just curious if, if this was a situation where there are truths to be found in both of those two models that you begin your book discussing, um, you know, and perhaps some that both of them are missing as well. And it sounds like that's the case. Yes, I agree with you. I agree with you on the atonement models, by the way, as well, that <laughs> you need to take into account all of the model. There's many models in scripture and uh, they overlap as opposed to excluding. Of course, as long as no one of them is pushed forth to the exclusion of the others. Right. And in this case, I would say the same. There are truths in, in both models, uh, but if they're pushed to particular uh, exclusive extremes or over and against one another, which in some cases is inevitable because sometimes they are making contrary claims, uh, then there, there may be a choice between them or there may be a third option. Right. But I wasn't, I wasn't just looking to try to find an option between them. I was open to the fact that one of them just had the correct model of divine love uh, but as it turned out, there's, there was much to learn from both of them, but then also some things uh, that that are worth criticizing in both of them. Yeah. So one of the things that I've often heard over the course of the past, gosh, what has it been, 14 years or something like that as a Christian, uh, is, is that – you know there are these different words translated love and scripture, some of which reflect a a higher or superior or more uh, godlike love than others. Um, and, and and in chapter three, you challenge the oft repeated claim that the love that, that the, the word translated love that is inherent inherently superior to the rest is agape. Um, the the other alternatives being eros and and philos. Um, you you conclude your chapter by saying that. Um, they, as well as several Old Testament words for love, uh, actually overlap to a, to a very large degree, and that neither, you know, none, no specific one of these words over the others um, takes a higher place, you know, or, or, or is superior to the others when it comes to the nature of love that they describe. Um, if I've accurately captured that, tell us more about that and about the multifaceted picture of divine love that these various words paint for us. That was one of the things that surprised me the most in my investigation, and and one of the first things that I remember being really surprised by, that 
what I had been taught, uh, like you and I think so many others, about this unique, divine, agape love just didn't bear out semantically. And the problem is not that God's love is is not unique. Uh, there's uniqueness because, of course, it's better than anyone else because God is perfect and therefore his love is perfect. Uh, but the the way it had been framed uh, had been derived from a theological discussion of Anders Nygren and others that had infused uh, a kind of thematic agape, which is very very different in many respects than the way the agape word root is actually used uh, in the New Testament and in the Septuagint, for that matter. Um, and what you find in, in the biblical data, if we just take the New Testament for a moment, you find that agape is, in fact, uh, the ma- one of the main words that's used for divine love, the main word in the New Testament. But the word itself doesn't just entail divine love. It can also entail misdirected love. Uh, so Paul criticizes Demas for loving this world, and he uses uh, agapao there, the verb for agape. And so it can be misdirected love. It can be a lesser love. Uh, but it also referred to God's love, which is the highest and the greatest. Uh, beyond that, in the Septuagint, uh, which, at least in my investigation, it seems uh, that especially Ahav in the Hebrew and the Old Testament, the word for love, and many other Old Testament words, uh, but especially Ahav uh, is the word that the agapo, the agapao word uh, group is translating the most. And I think the New Testament writers uh, were were making the most use of the Old Testament background uh, in the Septuagint. The agape is used in the Amnon and Tamar narrative to describe Amnon, Amnon's feelings toward Tamar. And uh, we, we know from the story that that was not anything that we would want to even call love in the English language. Mm. There's a great deal of elasticity in the semantic range of agape in the Septuagint, uh, especially in the Septuagint, and to a lesser degree in the New Testament. When it comes to other words for love, then, once you get past the presupposition, uh, which I had no intention of challenging, but <laughs> it just jumped out to me in, in the data, once you get past the presupposition that the agape root is only describing a uniquely uh, divine kind of love, you find, uh, with regard to many of the other terms in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that they have a largely overlapping semantic range. Some words portray different aspects and different facets than other words that are used contextually. But particularly in the New Testament, I'll set eros aside because the eros word group uh, actually doesn't appear in the New Testament at all. It only appears a few times in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, and even and there it's never talking about God at all. So it it's not a biblical term at all with regard to divine love. Hmm. But when it comes to philos and the phileo root in the New Testament, uh, you if you find, if you do a comparison, uh, that even though the phileo root is used uh, quite a bit less, and there's apparent linguistic reasons for that, uh, it's been suggested that uh, phileo was just changing meanings during that time to mean more like to kiss, uh, like in a holy kiss, and agapao became a, a more the more common term uh, for love generally. But in the way that it is used in the New Testament, you find that it overlaps the semantic range of the way it's used in the New Testament alone overlaps with the agape word in almost uh, almost every significant respect, uh, mm. which is not to say that they are synonyms entirely, uh, but you can't say that one refers to divine love and another one does not refer to divine love. Just really quickly to take one example, uh, in John 14, verses 21 and 23, I think it is you have uh, the agapao uh, word to, used to describe, uh, which is the verb of agape, used to describe God's love uh, for the Son. 
And then in John 16, 27, you have almost the exact same wording, uh, almost the exact same thing is being said, but there the phileo uh, verb is being used to describe God's love for the Son. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the words mean the exact same thing, but it does mean that you can't say that phileo is a lesser kind of love unless you think that God can love in a lesser kind of way, right? So uh, there's a lot more to be said, but there, there's so many terms, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I did an inductive study of the canonical data because I didn't want to deductively narrow the field to to just terms or what I thought love meant already and then miss this larger scope. Yeah. Well, you go from there to spend the next five chapters discussing a, the same number of aspects of divine love. And obviously we're not in this short interview going to go in and in, go into any depth in any one of these different aspects. But I do want to ask you a couple of questions about what I think is the intriguing way that you sort of sum these up in the conclusion to, cha- to chapter nine. For example, you say that God's love is first, quote, voluntary, but not based solely on his will, unquote. Now, this suggests that perhaps the question is often thought to be an either or question, going back to, you know, um, what we were talking about earlier, when in fact, perhaps it's something of a both and. I- explain this for us, what the significance of is, what the significance is of God's love being both voluntary and not based entirely or solely on his will. Yeah, I think the way you framed it there is, is exactly right. In fact, the transcendent voluntarist model, uh, one of the reasons why the voluntarist is in that name is because it's it makes love dependent solely on God's will. Uh, whereas in the other model, I mean, an experientialist model, God's love is a, a necessary aspect. He He's in a necessary essential relationship with the world, which means he couldn't exist without some world, and his love is just part and parcel – love for the world, I should say. It's just part and parcel of his being – in relationship to the world. So on one hand, you have love being uh, primarily God's will, and in some cases, identical to God's choice and some definitions of love, and in the other, excluding will entirely. And what I found is that God's love is volitional. He, he, do, he, he is free uh, in relationship to the world. And what I mean by that is he was free not to create any world. And then once uh, this world falls, he would have been free uh, not to continue relationship with this world, but he chose to create this world and he chose to remain in relationship with this world and to go to the great lengths he did in the plan of redemption to redeem this world of his, of his own uh, free will. Uh, nevertheless, love in its entirety is not solely a matter of God's will because it also takes into account uh, some of the other aspects such as uh, what I call evaluative and emotional aspects. And both of those two, for instance, are those where God actually takes into account uh, the dispositions and the activities of the objects of his love of human beings. So there is not merely a unilateral relationship of love from God to humans, but there is a bilateral relationship, a two-way street of love between God and human beings. And so instead of pitting uh, volition or the will against reason or against the emotions, it seems that actually scripture treats all of those uh, aspects of God's personhood as mutually complementary uh, in a way that they shouldn't really be pitted against one another. And even though we tend to think of something uh, as uh, will and emotion being pitted against each other when it comes to love and other things, I mean, you often hear people say uh, you can't will to have a feeling, which means sometimes they reduce love to something else so that they say you can will it. Or they say you can't will love because you can't will a feeling. But in fact, in Scripture, it actually indicates, it actually calls for people to use their will when it comes to love, which is not to say that they have 
utter control over every aspect of love by the act of willing, but that the will plays a role in their love, which it cannot be reduced to that, nor can it be reduced to any of the other aspects, and they shouldn't be set in opposition to one another. That's really interesting, and and you said something that isn't um – you know, it, it, just, it just sparked an interesting side question in my mind, and I'll ask you about it, even though it's not directly relevant to this. But you, you said that God chose, uh, could have chosen not to create, and then you said he could have chosen not to remain in relationship after crea- after creation fell, after Adam and Eve fell, affecting all of creation. Uh, was was that an intentional admission, omission of? Uh, of of say, of of this of of saying that he could have chosen not to love creation when he created it in the first place. In other words, or or, or was that just a you know inadvertent omission? Because it seems to me that if he could have chosen not to create, and if he could have chosen not to remain in relationship after crea- after creation fell after the fall, could he have chosen not to love creation before it before the fall? Yeah, so I separate that question out because it in, because it entails uh, quite a bit of a larger discussion about the relationship between at least what in uh, classical theology is called the distinction between God's existence and essence. And I attempted in the study not to try to because I'm trying to derive it from the canonical investigation itself. I left that question open with regard to this particular study, although I tend to think that. God's character and his uh, and being love and that God is love, as First John 4 says, I tend to think of it as if God puts himself in relationship to the world, then that's going to be a love relationship that he puts himself in. Uh, but if you believe, as I do, and I think the Bible teaches that uh, God did not need to create any other any world, then the very act of not creating a world would entail the freedom not to be in love relationship with the world. Now, of course, it depends on how you define love, because one might be asking not just about whether God could be loving or not, which is really a question of God's essence and intertrinitarian relationship, which is very uh, interesting in its own right, uh, but fell beyond beyond the scope of my methodology. I have some thoughts about that, but they're a lot, lot more tentative. Of course, all, all things are tentative because they're always open to correction <laughs> uh, by the biblical data, but some are more tentative than others, depending on uh, what, what you've looked into more deeply, yeah. uh, especially with the canonical study. Uh, but one might one might ask, um, with regard to God's love in relationship to the world, if if it can be cut off or if it could be forfeited, if in that sense God could stop loving the world. And in that sense, uh, I did find that God's love relationship could be forfeited, which is not to say uh, that God's love entirely uh, is changeable or conditional or something like that, but that there's a relational aspect that based on creaturely response, it could be removed. And only in that very limited sense, one could say that God doesn't love the world, but it's not a matter of him choosing not to love the world because at least according to scripture, he always chooses to love the world and wants to be in relationship uh, with beings in the world. I hope listeners are getting the impression of just how deep and, and uh, multifaceted the, the the question of God's love is. It, it's no, it, it's much deeper than simply the phrase "God is love," and and I think it's going to get a little bit more uh, deep and 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 complex because uh, you know one of the historical classical um, understandings of God, as far as I understand anyway, is the, is the doctrine of divine impassibility. And yet you say in this conclusion of chapter 9, I think it was, that God's love is profoundly emotional and passable. Is this any sort of challenge to that doctrine of divine impassibility? 
it, it does entail it does entail a challenge to a particular form of the doctrine of divine impassibility. And in my rendering, I wouldn't I would not subscribe to divine impassibility. Although we need we need to frame it from the outset in, in a way that doesn't set up uh, a false dichotomy. Um, at least in the in the more recent discussion, there's a distinction made among those who favor impassibility between uh, what some call unqualified impassibility and some call qualified impassibility. And basically, uh, unqualified impassibility is the view that God cannot be affected by the world in any way such that he's not affected by the world. And he doesn't have emotions as we would define emotions. The And, and I would define emotions neither qualified or Unqualified impassibilists would define them this way, but I would define emotions as a uh, as an emotional response to some stimulus, which would by, by definition be passable in the sense of being affected by another. Uh, but the, the unqualified impassibilist will say that God is uh, not affected by the world at all. The qualified impassibilist says, uh, well, God God does feel emotions in relationship to the world, but those emotions are themselves willed by God, and he determines all the things that the other agents do such that all of his emotions are uh, his determined response, but it's not really a response to what's happening in the world, which he also determined. Now, the reason I mention that is because there, uh, Paul Gavriluk, for instance, has made an argument that the patristic view of impassibility, even though it is uh, quite pervasive in the literature, is he argues that it's actually the qualified form of impassibility, where God does have emotions, they're just defined in, in a particular qualified way with regard to God's sovereignty, as opposed to the more robust conception that God just doesn't have any pathos at all. Uh, when it comes to my view, I think that even going beyond qualified impassibility, um, that scripture presents God as having ro- robust emotions in a extremely robust uh, and non-trivial manner that it's very difficult to explain as being impassable. Now, qualified impassibility uh, get, would get one a little bit closer to doing justice to that biblical data. But I think uh, the things that I think are intended to be upheld by impassibility, like uh, that God is uh, not overwhelmed by his emotions or he's not surprised by anything that happens – or he's not vulnerable in, in some uh, way that would threaten uh, his sovereignty in relationship with the world. I think that all of those things can and are affirmed on a modified form of classic theism and in the, the form of the God relationship that I hold that don't require any more the usage of the term impassibility, which is not found anywhere in the canon. It's not – there's not even a direct – inference, or I would say even indirect inference, uh, from biblical data to impassibility. And so I just questioned the usefulness of the term at all, because at least etymologically and even traditionally, except for this more recent challenge uh, to unqualified impassibility, it has been taken to mean that God is not affected by the world at all, which would mean he could not have emotions if emotions entail some kind of a stimulus response. There's more to say there, but I want to let you you jump in. Yeah, well, it's it's. I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm I'm still a bachelor student in uh, biblical and theological studies, and and so my understanding of divine impassibility um, is you know woefully inadequate. That having been said, I thought divine impassibility was was argued to mean by those who still affirm it today. Not to mean that God has no emotions, or not to mean that God's emotions are not a response to stimuli, but rather that God is not 
for, for lack of a better way of putting it, carried away by his emotions, that, that he's, that he's in control of them in, in the sense, you know, as human beings, we often, uh, when we get angry, we see red and we lose control, right? We, 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 um, uh, we, we don't have control over our, over our emotions. Uh, whereas I've understood the, dev- the doctrine of divine impassibility to mean that he is, uh, that he's always in control. Um, and although he experiences emotion, he's not swept away by them. Um, to what extent is that? even remotely an accurate understanding of divine impassibility and 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 would you say that that is that that is a fair way of putting it that god experiences emotion as a result of stimuli but that he's not carried away by it to the point where he loses control yeah so there's a couple of things there i think what you're describing is uh at least close to what qualified impassibility would be hmm. that god does feel emotions but those emotions are then defined in such a way at least by most that God himself wills those emotions, which by definition would mean they're not a stimulus response. Mm. I think there are probably some who think, who want to use the traditional language of impassibility and use it uh, in that way in order to cut off just what you're describing, that God's not carried away with emotions, he's not overwhelmed with them, he's not some kind of divine basket case. And in fact, I, I agree with that, that he's, that he's not, uh, and that, that he does have a particular uh, uh, control in relationship to the world, not that, in my view at least, not that he's controlling others, uh, but that he is not out of control of his own divine disposition or his own emotions in any way or, or threatened by them uh, in that respect. But I don't think that one – I don't think that's impassibility, mm. either traditionally or, or etymologically. Now, one could make, could make an argument, I suppose, with regard to the tradition, but there's, there's not many that I see – that are willing to to make the move, and it's the crucial move. That it's a it's a response to a, to a stimulus uh, by someone other than God. Those that take that qualified impassibilist view, and not everybody is as, is as clear on this, but those that are specifically clear on this, uh, I take to be saying that God controls not just His response, and I would put that in quotation marks uh, because even that's a bit euphemistic on this model. His response to uh, the activity of other agents, but he's controlling. Uh, he's unilaterally willing the activity of those other agents and his own feeling in res- in response. Again, in quotation marks, to those agencies. Uh, but in in the biblical data, it's it seems to be presented very differently than that as a very strong response to stimulus. Uh, that God is not actually determining his response to. And so I say that, so for instance, let me, one example would be uh, in Hosea 11, 8, and 9, where God is lamenting what he's going to do with his child, Ephraim. He's referring to Israel, of course, there. Uh, and, you know, what am I going to do? How can I give you up? Uh, I'm paraphrasing, you know, my, my stomach has turned over within me. Uh, very, very strong language of emotion, but also lamenting uh what they're doing, the stimulus that's, that seems to be causing that emotion. And that's not to say that God is not, is somehow overwhelmed in a way that uh, would, would threaten uh, his being God. But he's profoundly but affected. It's a prof- exactly, profoundly affected emotion that he is not just willing to have. So I think that, I, I do think that there are some who affirm impassibility who probably affirm it because of the reasons that, that you specified and some other reasons with regard to the God-world relationship. But I argue uh, in this book and, and, and in some other research that I think that the term impassibility is not necessary to, to those things. You can make the creator-creature distinction. 
and a couple of other things uh, that are standard fare in describing divine ontology that would protect a doctrine of God from uh, those other uh, potential problems without saying impassibility, where again, if you just if you take it in the way that it's often framed, and many, there are also many advocates of unqualified impassibility, and that's one of the problems. When people use impassibility simpliciter, what exactly are they talking about? And if they don't define it, it comes off as God doesn't is not affected at all and cannot have emotions. And if they do qualify it, it raises questions about precisely the nature of the emotionality that God is portraying. So I don't want to rule out if if somebody is defining impassibility in in the weaker set, even weaker than qualified impassibility that that something like what you described, then I, I would just ask at that point, well, why use the term impassibility anymore? And yeah, just, maybe there's a good reason that they have for that. I just, yeah. just well, it's, it, it's probably just to maintain what they think is, is, uh, is orthodoxy or something like that. Um, which, which I guess, so, so let me play the devil's advocate for a moment and ask a couple of quick questions that, that have come to my mind during, you know, as you were just explaining what you did. Um, how would you respond if somebody who is a proponent of divine impassibility – and I'm only guessing that this is what they might have to say. But what would you say to them if they were to push back saying that the kinds of descriptions like the one in Hosea that you just referred to that that portray God as being profoundly affected by stimulus to um, to experience you know these deep emotions? What if they were to say that, um, that that's language of condescension, right? That God yeah. is – uh, obvious, I can I can tell by your response. This is something you've already given thought to. So, so what would how would you respond to that kind of a, of, a, of an explanation? Yeah. So, there's three main arguments that are usually made uh, over and against the data that describes divine emotions to explain why they're not actually describing. Well, I shouldn't say divine emotions, divine passable emotions. That ex- ex- explains on that view why they're not actually uh, describing passable divine emotions. Right. So, I'm very glad you raised that question because we wouldn't give the impression. Uh, that people that take the view of divine impassibility are just unaware of these texts or something like <laughs> yeah. that. They're certainly not, and they certainly have uh, counter arguments. Uh, so the main, the three main one is that God is just impassable, and if impassibility entails that He can't have emotions or He can't have emotions of a particular kind, whichever one of those you take, uh, then that's an open and shut case. Of course, on that one, I would ask, okay, so then where is the canonical reason or the biblical reason that would suggest that God is impassable? Uh, but then there are two more, and one is the one you just raised, condescension or divine accommodation, right? That when, when, God, when this language is used of God, it's accommodative language. It's not actually describing God as he is. Now, typically, the commentators who make that move, they, they tie that to the view that God is impassable. We know God is not like this because God is not subject to emotions, and therefore this language must be taken as accommodative language and therefore not really emotional language. And closely tied to that, particularly in instances like Hosea 11 and other places, is the the issue that there's anatomical imagery used. And so they immediately appeal to divine and corporal reality, and they say, well, God doesn't have a body, so obviously language is not literal, and therefore it's not describing divine emotions. Uh, with regard to that last one, I think that that's a bridge too far. I would agree that the referent is not actual body parts, but I would disagree that that entails the, that it's not describing actual emotions. Uh, the reason for that is the same idioms, and I've done a study on that. Some of it's included in the book. Some of it's included in an article that just came out uh, recently in Perspectives in Religious Studies uh, called Theopathic or Anthropopathic uh, Question Mark. That's the, the short title. And I, I just did a, a survey of the idioms that are used with divine emotions, uh, divine emotions that I take to be passable emotions. And the same idioms are used of human agencies where they don't refer to the human anatomy. They... Uh, 
it's always dangerous to use the word clearly, but so I will say they demonstrably, <laughs> they demonstrably, uh, you can show that they refer to emotions, n- not to the, the human anatomical parts. Uh, they're idiomatic expressions or metaphorical in that respect. And so you can't, if you take away the emotional upshot of them, then they don't say anything at all anymore. And so you, the body part argument just doesn't carry any weight over and against the emotionality. But when it comes back to divine accommodation, uh, I would be open. I, I think that all of the biblical language is accommodative in the sense that all language, all scriptural language is written in language that humans can understand, which requires an accommodation or a condescension. That's not to say, by the way, I should say very clearly, that's not to say that the biblical language is therefore untrustworthy or inadequate. And in fact, I think it is fully trustworthy. I think it's still fully adequate. It's just that there's only, uh, obviously, we're limited by our cognition and our human language and what we can receive through divine revelation. Uh, but divine revelation is still adequate in communicating uh, what God is like, at least to the best extent that we can understand. And if it's communicating what God is like to the best extent we can understand, then there's not other language that's available to us that's not accommodative, right? I right. mean, all language that I can use as a theologian is human language. So I'm hard-pressed to think of any other language that's better. I'm quite willing to say, and this is actually what I do say, I think that the language is analogical. Uh, meaning it's not univocal. It's not a one-to-one correspondence. The word used for God doesn't mean the exact same thing that it means when it is used uh, of human agency. But it's not equivocal either. That is, it doesn't mean something entirely different. If it did, we wouldn't have any idea what it meant at all, which means it must be analogical. But there's a huge spectrum of analogy between univocity, meaning the exact same thing, and equivocity, meaning the entirely different thing. And within that spectrum, the question is, where on that spectrum does this imagery fall? And I would say... Uh, short of any intra-canonical reason, again, this is going back to my, my commitment to canonical theology, others may have different commitments, but short of any intra-canonical reason following my own methodology, I'm going to take the, that imagery in its exegetical meaning with its exegetical force, unless there is some intra-canonical reason to take it otherwise or for it to be qualified. And in the case of responsive passable emotions, there's just not a qualification that would render them to be non-passable. And in fact, I don't, I'm not sure you can make sense of the text if they are. There are cases in other instances where there would be this kind of intercanonical control. So the same Hebrew word, I forget exactly what the Hebrew word is, but in the Old Testament, you can find uh, the, the expression that, that God does not grow tired or weary. But in other places, he's talking of Israel and he says, you know, I'm tired of your sacrifice. I'm tired <laughs> of your offering. The exact same Hebrew word is used. Now, that's not a contradiction. It's qualifying the kind of, right? He doesn't grow weary in one sense. There's another kind of weariness. He's weary with the fact that they're not listening to him, right? In a different kind of way. Uh, and so it would qualify what it would mean uh, with regard to God. Uh, same thing with uh, divine passion, which is often rendered divine jealousy, which is, by the way, very important to, to the meaning of divine love. That's the kana root. Uh, in, in, in human language, if, if you were to say to me or somebody else was to describe me as a jealous husband, that would probably be not a very positive thing, right? But in Scripture, it's a very positive thing for God because it just means uh, passionate love for exclusive relationship. And if you look at the way the word is used with regard to God, it never refers to envy or anything that would be uh, something like the negative connotations of jealousy in the human language. But it is used for humans in that way. And so there's an intercanonical indication that this is a different kind of thing. Mm. No doubt when it comes to divine emotions and divine emotionalities, there is uh, and is not. There's an, uh, there's ways in which God's emotions are unlike human emotions. For instance, that he doesn't uh, fly off the handle. He doesn't overreact. His emotions, at least the way I frame it, are always the appropriate response to the state of affairs, whereas 
my emotions sadly often are not, right? So there are those differences that are just entailed by the way that God is described in Scripture. And there are probably other, there are surely other ways that divine emotions differ from human emotions. But where they're not specified, I just want to say I'm going to stick close to the canonical language. And uh, as I see through a glass darkly now, it will be enlightened later. But I don't want to go and say, well, these are the ways that God is like and unlike us. And in that respect, going back to methodology, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan methodologically of the way of negation, the via negativa, or the way of eminence. Uh, and the reason for that is in order for me to either negate what doesn't apply to God or to take uh, to the nth degree whatever I consider to be a good thing or perfection, I would already have to know either what God is like and what should be denied of him or what are the best attributes to have. But those things are themselves disputed and disputable. Uh, for instance, Charles Hartshorn also claims to follow a via eminentia. He just takes passability itself to be the most important thing or divine sympathy to be the most important thing. And he says, well, God is therefore the most sympathetic being. So he's, he's taking the same methodology. The question then is, what do you, what do you think is, is applicable to God in the first place? And of course, you can see where, why that's problematic methodologically. Sure, sure. Well, you know, the other, the other question that I thought I might ask you is, and this, and this, um, this comes up because as of late, uh, for reasons we won't get into in this podcast, I've been contemplating the doctrine of uh, divine timelessness. Now, if um, now I understand that at least nowadays, I don't know how historic this is, but at least nowadays, um, you know, there are a, a number of different theories of time, and and not every you know Christian philosopher or theologian affirms the doctrine of divine timelessness, but there are some who do, uh, and it certainly has, or at least it appears to have, um, you know, a really ancient pedigree. If uh, God is passable. You know, and and if his emotions are a response to stimuli, then it would seem that by definition he must exist uh, within some sort of time, and and that divine timelessness uh, would therefore um, be ruled out as a possibility. What do you, how, you know? What are your thoughts on the relationship between God's emotions, in particular love, and the doctrine of divine timelessness? Or am I making a mountain out of a molehill? No, it's, it's, it's good that you bring that up and interesting that you bring that up because actually I use and take, uh, what I, what I consider to be passable emotions and think are demonstrably passable emotions as evidence that God is not timeless, at least in the, uh, in a particular classical conception of timelessness. Now we need to be careful there. I, I will try to, I'm not always successful because it's very difficult to talk about time <laughs> and yeah. any other language of time, uh, or issues of time without using, uh, language that, uh, muddies the waters in unhelpful ways. So I, I try always to avoid language of within and in time, any kind of language that would suggest that time is necessarily some kind of a container or some mm-hmm. kind of a restriction, which already, uh, puts you into territory that is going to be at least objectionable on the face of it, right? Um, depending, on, depending on one's conception of God. Uh, but short of trying to frame time as a container, I, I tend to think of this in minimal terms, uh, so as not to say too much and too little, that if timelessness is defined, it's not always defined this way because some people use the word in many different ways, and still want to affirm it because it is a traditional way of speaking of God, but they don't mean what was meant by timelessness by others, uh, such as Aquinas, for instance. Uh, but if timelessness, it, well, let's take it this way. If time is taken to be the succession of uh, before and after or past, present, and future, right? There's a succession of moments of past, present, and future. Uh, and if timelessness is defined as incompatibility 
with time, where time is past, present, and future, then if God is passable, he could not be timeless in that way. Because in order to have a responsive emotion, uh, a response to an actual stimulus, there would have to be a time one uh, before that stimulus and a time two where he has that emotion, which is a change, which requires that God, at least analogically, can and does experience uh, before and after relations and events in relationship to us. Now, what that entails with regard to God's relationship to time more generally, I would not want to try to say. I would again say there's an analogical temporality, meaning that there is both an is and an is not, a similarity and dissimilarity with the way God relates to time, with the way we relate to time. And one of the most obvious is that, of course, uh, God is not uh, going to uh, decay, right? Like the grass, uh, the flower fades and the grass fades and the flower withers, uh, but God is eternal, uh, everlasting is the way that I – what I take that to mean. Uh, so there are, of course, differences that are clearly indicated by the data. But surely there are other ways that God transcends our limitations of, of temporality uh, such that I would not want to uh, project upon the divine being more than I know about God's relationship to time. But I would say that if – the, if God is experiencing passable emotional responses, then there would be at least an analogical kind of temporality where God is able to experience things uh, and respond to things in 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 time. Uh, okay, yeah, I, I was <laughs> I was almost uh, prompted to ask it another question, but um, as fascinating <laughs> as this is. Uh, I, I'm going to try and pull us instead out of the rabbit hole and return to the questions that I've that I've already sent you. Um, I, I, I mean it though; this is fascinating, and, and uh, you know, um, I'd love to pick your mind further in the future. For now, though, the third aspect of God's love, as as you summarize at the end of chapter uh, nine, um, that I wanted to ask you about anyway, was that you you write that God's love is for conditional but not merited. Um, and in the Calvinism-Arminianism debate, we often hear the words conditional and unconditional. What I've never heard before, however, uh, and maybe this is just ref- a reflection of how not widely read I am, uh, what do you mean here by for conditional, and how is it nevertheless not altogether unconditional, as you write elsewhere in the book? First of all, this has nothing to do with how much one has read or hasn't read, because as far as I know, you wouldn't find that term anywhere else. You invented it. <laughs> I, I coined it for the purposes of this study. As far as I know, I've never been able to find it. Even in a Google search, it didn't come up at all uh, before this book. Uh, so that doesn't mean it's not anywhere, but I've, I've never seen it anywhere. Uh, so I, I took four conditional out of because of a dissatisfaction with simply saying God's love is unconditional or simply saying God's love is conditional. Mm-hmm. I want to preface this by saying that God's love is both unconditional and conditional in different respects. Uh, so I'm not denying the use of those terms altogether, and I'm not denying but what, what many people mean by those terms, but I'm denying them if they're just taken in their exclusive sense uh, to define love. And so out of the dissatisfaction with those – not a personal dissatisfaction. It was dissatisfaction I came to when in the biblical data I found – not only the biblical data that suggests God's – that doesn't just suggest, that uh, describes God's love as everlasting and in many other ways, uh, in ways that would be described as unconditional, right? There's, there's no way in which it's not going to continue. There are many other passages that describe God's love as conting, con, conditional or contingent, contingent upon 
human response. Either love itself is because of this or that in many texts, or in other texts, God's love can be forfeited. Uh, so, for instance, in Hosea 9, verse 15, I think it is, God says to Israel, uh, I will love you no longer. And it's not just that text. There, there's other texts as well. Uh, and so there's these, at least these two streams, and one suggests uh, what I think is unavoidably conditional, at least in a minimal sense, and others suggest that God's love is everlasting. How do you make sense of these two streams? Some critical scholars suggest that there's just uh, two different streams that come from contradictory schools of thought, one being Deuteronomist. Uh, because of my view of scripture and my canonical methodology, that option is not open to me, and I don't take to be a very convincing one anyways for reasons I won't go into now. Uh, but I think that, that both of these streams actually make sense in consonance with one another. And in fact, uh, it, there are ways in which God's love is unconditional, meaning that he always wills to love. He always wants to love. His disposition of love never changes. So it's unconditional in that sense. But there's also a relationship of love that requires appropriate response and reciprocal love. That is love for God and love for others, which, of course, are the greatest commandments Jesus tells us. And so there's a conditionality and an unconditionality. And to try to reflect that in a term, I coined the term for conditional. And by that, I mean prior to conditions, but not exclusive to conditions. So the for mm. is F-O-R-E, like in foreknowledge, right? Uh, before knowledge. In this case, before conditions. God loves humans and the world prior to any conditions whatsoever. Uh, but the continuance of love relationship with him, even though he continues to love us in some respects, the continuance of love relationship with God is contingent upon our response to him, particularly our response uh, to Jesus Christ, which if we accept Christ by faith means that we will reflect God's love, albeit imperfectly, temporarily, uh, before glorification. We will reflect God's love uh, not only to him, but to other uh, human beings as well. So that's what I mean by for conditional. But for conditional or conditional just simply should not be confused with merited. Uh, I would say that God's love is for conditional, but never merited. We're never worthy of it. Uh, mm -hmm. First of all, God's love is a gift. Existence is a gift altogether. So it could never be earned. It could never be deserved. You couple that with the fact of uh, the fall of humanity and what I take to be the depravity, depravity of, of human nature. And Apart from God, we are entirely unworthy, and we couldn't even love him or anyone else if it were not for his prior reaching out to us, his prior grace. So, for instance, in Jeremiah 31.3, where he says, I've loved you with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness I have drawn you. Or, or you love, 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. So he's always the one reaching out to us, and we never merit it, even by our response, it's still unmerited. Uh, but it is, it is contingent upon responding to God's love appropriately. So the analogy I would use for some who, who, who would be confused and think that merited always mean conditional, sometimes they're conflated. I would use the, the, the analogy uh, at the risk of complications or other problems that is true of any analogy of, uh, say somebody, somebody has the winning lottery ticket, right? I don't think anybody would say that the winner of the lottery merits <laughs> winning yeah. the lottery. But if they do not produce that ticket, and again, this is not a perfect analogy. I'm not suggesting we should derive a soteriology from it, right? But uh, if you don't produce the ticket, you, you do not receive the, the winnings of the lottery. Uh, so there's a condition on receiving it, but that condition doesn't entail merit whatsoever. 
It's nothing to boast of, right? I won the lottery. I mean, look what I did. Look how great I was. I went down and I showed them the ticket. I mean, this doesn't make sense. So that's what I mean by four conditional, but never merited. Yeah, and and, and I, I I get that. Um, in fact, I, I part ways with some of my uh, you know fellow Reformed Christians, and, and we'll be talking about Calvinism and Arminianism in a, in a second. But I, I part ways with some of my Reformed uh, fellow Reformed Christians because many of them think that uh, you know any sort of um, denial of uh, a Calvinistic understanding of God's um, you know unconditional election means that. Um, salvation is merited. You know, in other words, in other words, the argument is that if a person um, chooses to accept the gift of salvation, that they are somehow earning it, unless it was completely, um, you know, uh, foreordained by God and 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 enabled by God via regeneration. And um, while I am a Calvinist and a firm tulip, I have not found that argument to be particularly persuasive. It seems to me that to use a similar analogy to the one that you offered. If a doc, if if you have um, if if you have a disease and a doctor offers to cure your disease by giving you a shot, but you still have to be willing to accept the shot, you know, in order to be cured of that disease, you you haven't merited the shot, you know, but there is a condition um, that has to be met in order to in order to receive the cure. So, um, so yeah, I, I can see that distinction for sure. Even if my Calvinist brothers and sisters are screaming at the <laughs> at, at hearing me say what I just did. Um, now, what naturally, my hope is that listeners will pick up a copy of your book and, and then read your treatment um, of these various aspects that we've been discussing in its full detail. Although, what they've already heard thus far must be like drinking from a fire hose and and i gotta warn listeners that the fire hose only gets more powerful uh and the stream larger um when they crack open your book um for for all, for now however let's move on and at this it's at this point in the book that you shift gears and discuss the ontological implications of these aspects of divine love so uh give us a sampling maybe of, of the ontological questions regarding god that arise from one's conclusions concerning divine love and, and how you think your canonical model answers those questions there's a lot of ontological issues that that derive f- from uh, an understanding of God's love, and if you take particular uh, a particular view of the God-world relationship, whether you take process theology or whether you take a more transcendent voluntarist conception of God, it's going to entail a particular conception of love. In reversing the methodology, the particular conception of love entails things about a number of ontological issues. Now, uh, there's many more that I won't mention now, and one of them we already talked about. One of the main four that I do mention in, in Chapter 9 is the question of passability versus impassibility. And I try to do justice, with that, uh, I try to, do justice to that issue in a way that uh, probably isn't, wasn't fully reflected by our earlier conversation. Uh, but that is a major issue of just how, if at all, God can be affected by the world. Uh, or is it just a unilateral relationship and therefore the love is defined differently and, and God's the word God relationship is defined differently. Uh, but the other main issues, uh, uh, the first four originally, one of them was uh, passability or uh, impassibility. Uh, the other was issues relating to the extent of God's power, particularly his use of power in the world. Uh, issues regarding determinism or indeterminism or the famous Calvinism, Arminianism uh, discussions. Uh, impassibility and a particular conception of, of immutability that goes along with it and the nature of God's perfection and his self-sufficiency, uh, which includes uh, the relation between God's love and his essence and some intertrinitarian issues. 
those are some of the major ontological questions that arise, none of which I suggest that I've in any way answered sufficiently. But the whole methodology from the beginning was if I look at the particulars of divine revelation, what light will that shed on the larger conception of the God-world relationship? Instead of saying, I know what the God-world relationship is like, and then I'm going to use that to extrapolate what love must be like. Bottom up instead of top down? Exactly. As much as possible, right? Sure. never succeed in doing this entirely, but that's the aim. Interesting. Now, I want to ask one last question before we begin to wrap things up. We've, we've, you know, listeners have heard us mention the Calvinist Arminian debate for a, a number of times during the course of this conversation. And I don't want to get into that rabbit hole in this conversation. Um, and furthermore, as I mentioned in introducing you, uh, my friend Terrence Thiessen, who is a Calvinist, uh, has praised your book. And so I think that um, already shed some light on the answer to the question I'm about to ask you. Um, but I'm stubborn and I'm going to ask it anyway. I'm a Calvinist, as are many of my listeners. Um, and while I affirm that human beings are free in a sense, I don't think that Scripture supports the conclusion that they have libertarian free will. Um, without debating the merits of libertarianism versus compatibilism, at least not in this interview. <laughs> uh, we could do that another time. What do you hope and think that Calvinist readers will take away from your book in those places that it might imply that libertarian human freedom follows from God's love? Or perhaps I misread what I read and, and, and perhaps you know your book doesn't imply that libertarian human freedom follows from God's love. Yeah, I think you read it correctly. I, I do think – that divine love entails a conception of libertarian human freedom. Of course, that can be defined in many different ways. And without going into the whole debate debate here, um, I think a, a minimal minimal conception of libertarian freedom that humans are free to reject God's love. Uh, there's more to be said there, obviously, uh, exactly <laughs> what exactly that means. Uh, but if that's the minimal conception, and uh, then I would say that it does entail libertarian freedom. Of course, I'm sensitive to those who would read uh, scripture otherwise. Um, a couple of things I would say there. First of all, I would hope uh, – well, let, let me say methodologically again. Not that anyone can ever be fully successful in this and uh, and all the rest. But when I was uh, undertaking the canonical investigation, of course, in, in reading the discussion, the larger debates – surrounding the God relationship and love, I knew that this was was going to be a major issue. And I, I came already from an Arminian tradition, but I intentionally wanted to to study the canonical data in a way that if it did entail determinism or determinist conception of love or, any, or anything else, that I would be willing to adopt it. Now, of course, that's easier said than done. I can only know in my heart of hearts that I was willing to follow the data. That doesn't mean that there wasn't some other blind spots that were you know, impinging upon me such that I didn't see things that uh, my my friend, my reformed friends would see. Uh, but I, I did my best and I tried to be very thorough, even more than is reflected in this book in, in the larger dissertation length study uh, that goes through all the survey of the biblical texts that impinge upon these issues in any way whatsoever. And I did, I did come to the view that uh, love entails a libertarian conception of freedom. Having said that, however, um, I, I do hope that and, and there's evidence already. You mentioned Terry Thiessen in there. There are other uh, Calvinist scholars who have uh, mentioned to me very kindly how much that they've enjoyed and appreciated the book, even though they disagree on, on that point and, and perhaps some others uh, of, of interpretation. Um, and so I take 
I, I'm very happy about that because I wanted to write in a, an ironic way uh, that a broad audience can go along on the journey with me, uh, not in a way that's saying this is just the final word. In fact, I invite more dialogue on the canonical data and, and what it means and how we can learn even more about love and everything else. Uh, so I'm very happy that they that there are many Calvinists who have have enjoyed the book already, and I would just hope that the Calvinist readers will uh, would first of all just be open to the data and, and re looking at it, even as I'm continue to be open to looking at the data again and again. And secondly, I think that uh, Calvinist readers would in fact n- not have any problems with most of the aspects that are discussed. Uh, the volitional aspect, of course, there's a difference in the way that it is framed on the human side. But on the divine side, there would be a lot of affinity there. Uh, when it comes to emotions, those that are at least uh, willing to adopt emotions, emotionality, uh, they may have differing, differing views on whether it's passable or impassable and precisely what that means. Uh, but hopefully, I, I've given a robust enough treatment there to advance the discussion a little bit. Um, uh, and and I think the, the other aspects are demonstrable from the biblical text um, in a way that I think Calvinist readers will appreciate because at least in my engagement with Calvinists and Calvinist theologians, there is a very high view of scripture, uh, a great desire to want to derive theology from the Bible. And there I think uh, that we are, are very close in the values that we bring to the discussion, which means we have a lot of common ground from which to discuss. And so I, I hope it would be beneficial and um, and interesting, and just continue to to advance the discussion that we're having. Yeah, and I think you I think you succeed in in all of that for sure. Uh, I was going to sort of um, flippantly offer some rhetoric that I've often been offered by my uh, Armenian critics who will say everything you just said assumes I have the freedom to do that in the first place. Anyway, um, <laughs> yes, yes. as I nearly always do with my guests, uh, I want to give you an opportunity, uh, opportunity to leave my listeners and me with a parting message, something that you hope will remember and take away from this interview if we forget everything else that's been said, which I think is uh, to a certain extent likely. <laughs> uh, what, what do you hope that, um, you know, when this recording is over and we go about the rest of our days, what, what do you hope that we'll ponder and explore um, and, and be thinking about more than perhaps we did before listening? Yeah, I hope listeners would be inspired uh, to look more deeply into the love of God, perhaps to ask some questions you haven't asked before and be willing to entertain questions and, and the answers that, that might come from a further examination of, of those questions. I truly believe uh, the love of God is central uh, to everything that we believe about God as Christians. And it's important for us to better to understand it better, uh, surely even even better than 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 I've tried to exposit, and I continue to learn, and I know I've I've barely scratched the surface. But I think the better that we understand God's love, uh, the more that leads us to worship Him, the more that leads us uh, to I think, if we're willing to reflect God's love uh, to others uh, in the world around us. And so I hope uh, that that readers, not just listeners, I'm not. Sh- I know that I've done a woefully inadequate job of expressing just the awesome majesty and grandeur of God's love, and and how moving it was just for me to go through the study. I hope that readers will catch a little bit more a glimpse of that uh, than I've been able to convey here, and and just really, if nothing else, be in awe of the God who is love and loves us and gave Himself for us in a way that that really goes beyond any adequate words, hmm. uh, at least any words that I could come up with to describe. Yeah. 
That's very good. I, I really enjoyed our time together tonight. If, if listeners want to pick up a copy of The Love of God, a canonical model, how do you recommend they go about it? Just just simply go to Amazon or something? Yeah, I think Amazon is the best way. From what I've seen, I think Amazon, uh, once you factor in the shipping, is, is the lowest price uh, of anywhere online. And I'm not sure what bookstores it's in. I, I imagine it's in some university bookstores. Uh, but I think Amazon is the best way to go. Amazon.com, if you just type in uh, Peckham and the love of God, it should come up right away. And if listeners um, in and around the Berrien Springs, Michigan area um, are interested in pursuing a Christian education, uh, where can they go online to learn more about Andrews University? Yeah, www.andrews.edu. That's our university website. And uh, you can find more about Andrews University there. Awesome. Do you have any social media links, uh, you know, YouTube channel, Facebook page, anything like that that you want to give our listeners in case they want to follow you and perhaps reach out? Yeah, I have a Twitter. I'm kind of a newbie, but uh, <laughs> I do <laughs> I do have a Twitter uh, account, and it is at J.C. Peckham. Uh, J is, of course, my first name, John, middle initial C, and Peckham, P-E-C-K-H-A-M. So at J.C. Peckham, you can find me on Twitter, and I'd love to connect with you. Great. I'll make sure to include links to all of those things in the show notes. And, uh, and, and Professor Peckham, I really appreciate your time tonight. I've had a blast, and I look forward to uh, talking to you more in the future. Me too. It was great to talk with you. Thanks, Chris. I know that prior to interviewing John, I hadn't given the love of God as much thought as I've been prompted to since. And I hope that this interview uh, likewise prompts you to do the same. I hope also that you'll join me for the next episode of the Theapologetics Podcast. Until then... Mm-hmm.